You know, as I observe our social media age, it appears to me that Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and all of the other social media avenues, which are designed to connect people, that's what they're intended to do. But as I observe, they've done quite the opposite. Social media has created a generation of people that live very disconnected lives where they assume that social media is what relationships are like. And it's produced people that are devoid of true, meaningful friendships and don't even know how to relate to people. And so we've taught our little girl, Abby, who's now nine, but she's just so beautiful. I'm like, someday, Abby, when you're a young woman, if a guy ever asks you out by a text message, the answer is no. No way. Be a man. Look at me in the eye and talk to me like a person. It's amazing how social media really has created such disconnects in people's lives. And, and again, as I observe, I just see what seems to me, especially in this context, Abu Dhabi, we're all expats from, from somewhere else. And there are countless souls that are just starving. They're so hungry for true meaningful relationships, friendships that will satisfy deep inside of your soul. And the reason that we're so hungry for relationships is that we bear God's image. Remember, we are image bearers of the one true God, and He is relational. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit truly delight in each other. They esteem one another. They respect one another. There's submission. There is such perfect, beautiful relationship. The Trinity is the only perfect community that exists. And so what you see in the Trinity, this beautiful communion, we have been made to reflect that. We are designed for relationship. First and foremost with Jesus, but then secondly with one another. So our souls truly are hungry for this. Today as we continue in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah, a series called Restoration, the gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see what exactly our God has revealed about belonging to his community. Because if you're a believer in Jesus, then you belong to his community of faith. And our God is shaping a people that will belong to him and will display his glory to the nations. That is what our God is doing. He is shaping a people right here. He has already begun to make all things new. For we are new creations with his spirit living in us. And he has called us, recreated us. And now we have the privilege of being ambassadors. We are a colony of heaven. And we display his character to those that are far from him. Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've been seeing for the last few months, points to Jesus. It's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that we have sung about so powerfully this morning. See, God is restoring people. And so what, what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is restoring a people back to the promised land. He's taking them from their exile 
they were in exile because of their own sin. They earned it. They disobeyed God, and so they were in exile. Well, the reality is that this points to our experience today that we, in a very real sense, are also in exile. We are no longer in the Garden of Eden, of Eden rather, experiencing God's presence in a perfect place with ourselves being full of integrity. We're no longer in the Garden. That paradise has been lost. We have been ousted, exiled from the Garden of Eden. And so God's plan from the very beginning has been to reclaim that, to have the second Adam to lead us back into the garden where we can then experience perfection and holiness and purity and see God as he is and have his full presence. And so this restoring to the promised land is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen one day as our brother Bud read from Revelation 21 where one day we will be with him. God will dwell with us. He's going to make all things new. And so a foreshadowing of that is seen with what is happening in Ezra and Nehemiah being restored to the promised land. Today we are exiles, continuing to follow our God, waiting for that day when we will be with him forever. God is restoring them spiritually. He's restoring us spiritually. We wait for that day when we will be fully restored in heaven. And we've tasted it now with his spirit in us. He's given us new hearts, new desires, his spirit's presence, not the full experience of heaven, but a very real experience of his presence in our lives. What you see in Nehemiah is from rubble to restoration. It was nothing but torn down walls, torn down temple. Everything was a disaster because of their own sin. And then God takes their brokenness And he then restores this holy city, as we'll see here this morning. And so the same way that God is at work in taking the rubble of our lives, and he rebuilds us, he heals us and restores us for his own glory to be displayed. And so what we're seeing here with the stories of the temple and the walls being rebuilt, it's pointing to something far more significant and profound is pointing to the rubble in our lives that God is restoring as we truly rest in Jesus and trust him. And my deepest desire as your pastor has been that you will see God. That's what I want most. If you can just get a glimpse of him, if you can honestly just see his indescribable beauty and majesty and glory and feel his love and the mercy that was shown on the cross. If you will see Jesus and if you will truly know him, not know about him, know him, rest in him and enjoy him, authentically rest in him. What will happen is his spirit will just do a mighty work of healing and restoring. And then we can face life with no fear and with no insecurity. So the last few weeks here in Nehemiah, we've been learning how God restores our souls back to him, 
to worship. And we talked weeks ago about distractions and how if we're going to have restoration, we can't be distracted. Nehemiah was so focused on the purposes of God. And he said no to all the distractions, and that leads to restoration. And then we saw two weeks ago about how the joy that we have in Christ, God, is our strength. Then when we know him, see him in his word, and we enjoy him, then that brings us joy. And then that joy is what sustains us and gives us strength to continue following him. And then last week we saw how if we're going to be restored, we have to repent. We can't, we can't expect to have God's presence, but also the presence of, of idols that we give ourselves to. You can't have both. And so we need open confession. We talked about not minimizing and not denying our sin, but staring at it in the face and being honest and repenting of it and resolving by God's help to never go back. And so today we're seeing in this continuation of this same process that when we're living this way, God's Spirit just rushes in and does a powerful work. And today we're taking the next step. Go a little bit further. Go a little bit deeper. As we look at Nehemiah 11 and 12. And my prayer this week has been that we will all hunger. That we'll be just so hungry for more of God's presence and more of his restoration in our lives. May we never be satisfied. May we want more. Nehemiah 11 and 12 reveals this next step, which is experiencing this restoration to really yearn more for Jesus has to be done with other people. You cannot do it alone. You can't fight the distractions. You, you, you can't repent. There, all of these realities, we've been looking at the last few weeks, you cannot do it alone. It's physically, spiritually impossible. And so we'll see that here from Nehemiah 11 and 12, that we need others around us. We need the people of God. Nehemiah 11 and 12, I'm not going to read much. I'll read a few select passages from that. It's really, there's three sections in Nehemiah 11 and 12. The first one begins in chapter 11, verse 1, and it goes all the way through 12, verse 26. So a chapter and a half is the first section in this this whole section of Scripture. And it's basically a long list. It's a long list of name after name after name after name after name after name from all of chapter 11 and through verse 26 of chapter 12. And these are names of people that were repopulating Jerusalem after the exile. So people that lived in Jerusalem. Now, the second section is much briefer, chapter 12, verses 27 through 43. And that describes how the Jerusalem walls were dedicated to God. The last section, chapter 12, 44 through 47, describes how provisions were made for the temple. And so people that were serving were provided, and the resources, so the money for the temple also was given. And so that's those two chapters. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I first was beginning to really study this intensely on Sunday, just preparing for today, at first glance, I thought, oh, how am I going to preach out of that? I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to say. Like, it's just a bunch of names. How am I supposed to preach a whole sermon and people actually stay for it when it's just a whole bunch of names? And I thought, well, that's not very insightful or, or that's not very engaging. But 
All I have to do is just read it again and read it again and read it again. Just like we all need to do and read God's word and think and pray and say, God, open my eyes because this is in your word and so it's here for a reason. And you start praying and meditating and then it's incredible how all of a sudden it starts exploding in your mind and you start to understand, oh, this is what you're revealing in, in your word, God. So I love those. It happens every week, but this is just a longer process because it was a bunch of names. But this is what we must do is keep pouring over God's word and thinking and meditating on it and praying. And then God is faithful. His spirit illuminates our mind and he allows us to see exactly what God has for us. Let's begin reading Nehemiah 11 verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. All right, now that might sound weird. You're like, I don't understand what's going on here. Well, I'll, I'll explain it to you. All the political and spiritual leaders of, of Israel were living in Jerusalem, which, of course, is the capital. But no one else wanted to live there. Hear me. No one wanted to move in to Jerusalem. Now, the walls have just been finished. We saw that recently. But no one lives there. It's desolate. The, the temple is there. The Levites, the priests, they live there. But no one else lives there. And no one wanted to live there. Well, why? Well, living in Jerusalem was not exactly winning the lottery. It's not, it's not like that. There were financial hardships to live in Jerusalem. Because think about it, in that day, in the 5th century B.C., it was a very agrarian culture. Everyone had their land for their crops and for their herds and their flocks, you know, so that this is their economy, was an agrarian-based economy, not like today. And so if you lived in the city within the walls, how would you tend to your field? How would you have enough lands to actually provide for your family? You couldn't. And if you were a major landowner, then how could you live in Jerusalem and still tend to your lands? You'd have to now hire people and trust them, and that's not as feasible financially. So it was more difficult on their finances to live in the walled-up city of Jerusalem. But it wasn't just about the money. It was also about security. Think about it. Why did they have to build the wall? Because enemies would attack. It was dangerous. Where was all the money? Where was all the gold? In Jerusalem. And so if an enemy army was going to come and attack, where were they going to go? Jerusalem. That's where they're going to attack. That's where the leaders are and the money is. Everything is in the capital. And so living in the capital was like you had a target on your back. So they're like, yeah, we've been there. We've done that. We've seen Jerusalem destroyed. Have fun with that. We're, we're going out here to the countryside, live in a village, have land, it's safer, better for our finances, so Jerusalem can just stay empty for all we care. So they just weren't that interested. So what happens here is God has to essentially force them, and they cast lots. So picture, not exactly, but like drawing straws, and whoever got to pick the short straw had to go to Jerusalem. And it says one out of ten had to move in 
to Jerusalem. But what God's word calls Jerusalem is important. It says Jerusalem, the holy city. That matters. This is called the holy city. And we'll see more later why that's so significant. But it says in verse 2 that the people, it says, blessed those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so they're saying, thank you, thank you for, for going. I'm so glad that you're going, and I'm not. But they were honestly blessing them for being willing to live in Jerusalem. And it appears as though some others even volunteered. This is those, those, those that were willing to go. And even though it was hard, some it appears from the text that says that they were willing on their own. Now, verses 3 through 24, which is a big chunk of this chapter, it describes name after name of the specific people and, of course, the family that lived in Jerusalem. And then verses 25 through 36 describes those who lived outside of Jerusalem. So it just lists all the names, the people who were living in the villages and towns that were outside of Jerusalem. And then you get chapter 12, the first 26 verses, describes all the priests and Levites that were serving, teaching, offering sacrifices, ministering to the people in the temple. So it's just a bunch of names. Let's read the last verse in that section, verse 26, after names are all listed. It says, there were in the days of Joachim, the son of Yeshua, son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. And so it's putting it in a particular era in time and space in history. It was during this time with these people, Ezra and Nehemiah, that when all of these people were relocating to these various places. So that's kind of the summary of that whole section. Let's jump to the next section that describes the uh, walls being dedicated, verses 27 through 31, just that one paragraph. And at, at at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages and to the Nedophatites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Amzareth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around them. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I, this is Nehemiah writing, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall to the dung gate. And then there's lists of, of more people that were in this choir and describes then a second choir in the paragraph following that. And so this, is this, this section you're describing the dedication of the wall. So we see this very elaborate, planned out celebration. And so it's much like our worship team. Guess what they do every week? They practice. There is planning that goes into leading us people in worship. And even that planning and preparation and practice is an act of worship and glorifies God. So there's this elaborate celebration, and the walls are dedicated to the Lord. Again, with these two large choirs that are on the walls, circling around, and they all go and meet in the temple. And it says that that they purified themselves, and they purified 
the walls and the gates with this ceremonial washing. And so they were desiring to be set apart, to be pure before God. This is significant. So it's called a holy city, and here they are purifying it and themselves. And it's holy, and they want to be pure because the city and the people belong to God. This was the city where God was made known. That's what made it holy. This is where the people who lived there were holy, living holy lives. And this city is where the one true God who was holy was worshipped, valued, and truly praised. And so the rest of this section just describes these gates and how they went around the city walls and met at the temple. Let's read verse 43 to get a flavor of, of the ending of this section. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. You hear that? They rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Whenever you read scripture, if, if anything is being repeated, it's important. It's unlocking the significance of that text. And so you see here five times, they rejoiced. They rejoiced with great joy. And they also rejoiced. And the joy was heard from far away. And so there's, there's this theme that they're experiencing God's restoration. And it's just, it's bubbling over and out of them to just have lives that are joyous. And then that last section describes the provisions for the temple. Verse 44, just to give you a taste of that. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portion required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And it talks about how these were the men that offered purification for the people of God. And so it says that they were rejoicing. The people were joyous and happy for the spiritual leadership and happy, it says, to give, to meet their needs and have the temple continue operating and ministering to them. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on giving, but it is in the text, so I'll just have a couple of thoughts. You see them giving here of their finances, but not because they had to. They weren't giving because the law commanded them to. Now, the law did, but that's not the heart of it. Because you see here, the word is rejoice. There was joy in giving. So they were giving generously, not because they had to, because they wanted to. Because giving is an act of worship. We give to what we love. We do. We all do it. If you really love food, then you're going to give of your finances to buy really great food or have great experiences, nice restaurants, because you love that. And so you will gladly invest in it. If you really like nice clothes, then you're going to give to that. If you like electronics, you're going to gladly give to that. Point is, we give, we spend our money in that which brings us joy, what we really delight in. And here they're rejoicing in 
in God. And just the overflow is they are being generous, which is why we say that giving is an act of worship. It's an overflow from a heart that loves God, that is really trusting God to provide. And so when we don't give, we're showing that we don't, our love for God is small. We're showing that, that we don't really trust him, that he's going to provide on 90%. Or maybe you can give more than that. The New Testament doesn't give a percentage. It, it can be generous and go far beyond 10%. And it shows that you want to partake in what God is accomplishing through his appointed means. And so if you are a person who doesn't give generously, you are missing out. That's all I can say. You're missing out. You're missing out on an important part of worship. One way that you can rejoice in God and express your affections for him. There's more than one way, but giving is certainly one way. So there's a lot more that we could look at and, and observe, and we'll do so in our home groups this week as we do it every week. But we need to go ahead and move on and, and stop and think, okay, what is the primary truth? What is the overarching truth that God is revealing right here in this powerful story so that we can really understand it and then apply it to our lives and see, well, what is God revealing? And so the primary truth from this overall text, this main idea, is that God's restorative work is aimed at shaping a people for himself. This, this is what we're seeing is that God is at work, he's restoring, and it's a purpose, it's aimed, it's going somewhere. And so God's restorative work is the aim that shaping a people for himself. And so when you see this long list of names for a chapter and a half, what we're seeing is real people that really lived a long time ago. But real people that were following the one true God, the same God that we follow today. God has always had a plan to save a people, to then dwell with them, to shape them to reflect his character, his glory, so that they can then display it to a watching world. This is what we do in Abu Dhabi. It's the same thing that they were doing then. We belong to God. We're being shaped by his word. He lives with us through his spirit, and then we are then able to display it to those that don't know him. And so these are all the names. Again, just read it. It's amazing. Name after name that are all hard to read, and all these names are members of God's community. These are people that belong to the people of God, to his community of faith. Which, kind of a sidebar, this is important as an implication of this. That's the reason why our church emphasizes covenant church membership. See, as a believer in Jesus, you right now already are a member of God's people. So if you know Jesus, then you are a member of his community of faith. But committing to grow, to serve, and to have community here in this local church is an expression of, of that truth. But you're doing it in an actual church, not just metaphorically or not, not just theoretically, but you're saying, okay, I belong to God's people, so I'm going to express that in real life. And so church membership, so committing to a church is, is a reflection, a reflection of a living commitment. See, if you are committed to Jesus, then why wouldn't you also commit 
to the way that he accomplishes his purposes. See, I mean, after all, the church is the way. It's not a way. The church is the way that Jesus has chosen to accomplish his mission. He gave it to the church. And so local churches is where God is at work. And so Jesus is committed to his church. Are you? Are you committed? If you're not, ask yourself a question. Why? Why am I not committed to the local church? Why am I not having meaningful community in this church? Why do I not want to serve Christ in this church? Why? 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 Because there's a reason. There's something that inside of you that is keeping you from wanting to express that commitment. And I don't know what it is, but I would ask you to talk to God and ask him to reveal to you why. And you have opportunity today, incidentally. Today at 4 o'clock in my home, we're going to have a membership class. You're welcome to come. It's not four hours of just sitting listening to talk, I promise. It's not going to be a four-hour sermon at all. We have a meal. We have you know, coffee, tea breaks, we have discussion, meet other people, it flows. It, I'm not saying that you'll be refreshed by 8 p.m., but you won't be exhausted either. It's, it's a good time. You'll learn about who we are as a church, what we believe, how we're organized, our church history. You'll learn everything about what our vision is and our strategy and how you can be a part of what God's doing here. So I encourage you to come. You can talk to the welcome team. We do have maps in my home at the, at the Welcome table, we'd love for you to come. God's restorative work is aimed at shaping a people for himself. So the reason that God is actively restoring people so that we can then worship him, to be satisfied in him. So he's restoring us so that we can then belong to him and truly rest. I was talking to my wife about the sermon this week, which I always do. She's my best friend and I mean, this is my life, and so I talk about it. And, and when I was just sharing what God put in my heart on this text, she, she reminded me, she was like, oh, go read Leviticus 26, 13. And I was like, okay, I haven't read that text in, in a while. Um, she's awesome. And so I looked it up, and it's a powerful text. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves in Egypt. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Hear that. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of slavery. I bought you. You belong to me. You're no longer slaves. I broke the, the chains off of your neck. And now you can look up, and you can move forward, not enslaved to your sin, to your idols, to your addictions. You've been broken. And you don't have to look down and have your shoulders stooped over and be down. You can look up and be lifted up and say, I belong to God. He is shaping me for his glory, and I can be restored. My soul can be restored, and I can worship him. And this is a powerful picture of restoration. How God calls us to himself. He then heals us. He liberates us from our idols that would enslave us. And he he shapes us so that we can then reflect his character to Abu Dhabi and beyond. And we do it together. 
can't do this alone. This long list of names reminds us that salvation is not individualistic. In the West, I mean, our people say Jesus was dying on the cross and he was thinking about you. Yes and no. He wasn't thinking about just you, just so you know. He was not thinking about just me. He was thinking about the glory of God being displayed as he was about to purchase a people, a nation of priests that are going to be holy and they'll reflect, display his infinite majesty and glory of a multitude that no one can count. That is what he was thinking about. So yes, you're in the number, but it's so much bigger than just you or me. We belong to the community of faith. And so restoration from God only comes when we do this together. It is truly accomplished together. If you are trying to experience transformation, healing, freedom from sinful patterns or addictions, if you want true restoration deep within your soul, and if you're trying to do it by yourself, you're going to be as successful as if you tried to grow a pair of wings. You can't grow a pair of wings. You have human nature. You don't have a bird nature. You're not going to grow feathers. You can, you can try or desire it, but it's not possible. You're going against your nature. God has made you relational. He has made you to need others. And he has designed this restoration, healing, transforming work and power through his spirit to happen in community. So you're a believer and you're a member of this community. And that has huge implications for how we live our lives. Let's spend our last few minutes here briefly just pondering some characteristics of the people of God and how this really has impact us today. Let me give you number one. As a people of God, we're called to be a self-sacrificing people. This is a major characteristic. So this has to impact our lives that we are a self-sacrificing people. You, you saw in the text people that were willing to go to Jerusalem, sacrifice themselves, endure the hardship, the discomfort, take the risk. And if you read it on your own time later, chapter 11, verse 6, 8, and 14, three times, they're called valiant or men of valor or valiant men. And so there's this theme of these men are brave. They're sacrificing themselves. To be a member of God's people is to be self-sacrificing. After all, we are called to reflect Jesus, and he's the ultimate one that sacrificed himself. So the more that we're captivated by Jesus, recognize his mercy, recognize his sacrifice, the more that we will be prompted and fueled to sacrifice for others. I'm in awe. I'm telling you, I'm in awe of this faith family, of how many people serve self-sacrificingly. It blows me away. The worship team, they come into my, my home on Mondays and practices, and there's so much joy for hours in them practicing just to get it right so that they can lead us in God's presence with no mistakes, which is no distractions so that your mind is on Jesus and not on, oh, they're, they're messing up. or What's going on up there? So no mistakes equals to no distractions. That's, that's their heart. I love that. The, the children's ministry, that they work so hard 
every week, and none of them get paid a dime, or I guess a fill, the number down there. They work hard. They sacrifice because they want children to know Jesus. People on the setups, and they come early every week. People in the communications team that, that do all things database and images and printed materials, or welcome team that greets people and follows up. I mean, just the list goes on of, of ways that people are serving. And I am amazed by our ministry team leaders, these deacons, these lead servants in our church, and this small army of people that serve week in, week out, self-sacrificing. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to experience this joy that comes from sacrificing for others. So are you a self-sacrificing person? We ought to be. We're not. That's evidence that we still need more of Christ's restoring work in our lives. Number two, people of God, we're called to be a holy people. We saw in Nehemiah 11 and 12 that the walls are being purified, the gates are being purified, the people are being purified, and the city is the holy city of God. And so God's people are called to be pure, we're called to be holy, set apart for service to God. And so there's the emphasis in this text on the temple, on the sacrifices, and on the priesthood. And this was the means for purifying God's people. And Nehemiah is prophetically pointing to Jesus, who is the ultimate high priest. He is the true temple. He is the once-for-all sacrifice, which allows us to be forgiven, allows us to be made holy Every day, a little bit more, trusting in Jesus, resting in him through the power of his spirit. So this text is also showing that being purified, being restored, and experiencing God's work leads to rejoicing with great joy. So it leads to joy. I think we need a new vision for what it means to walk in holiness, to walk in victory, to walk in integrity, in purity. Because we think, oh, that's drudgery. It's, there's no fun if I walk in holiness. I don't want that. That's too much work, and it's not going to be fulfilling. That's not true. Holiness is not boring or insipid. That's not true. That's life from the enemy who says, oh, sin, now that's tasty. Living a holy life before God leads to joy. It's just from the word. Living a holy life before God truly does lead to joy. Living a life that is holy is full of flavor. Because living a life that is full of God's presence. I mean, that's what this is about. It's full. You, you can't fix yourself. You can't heal yourself. Hear me. You can't restore yourself. You can't make yourself obey God. You can't make yourself holy. Holiness comes and only comes from God because only God is holy. So the only way in your life that you're going to actually grow and be more like Christ and walk in more holiness is to receive his mercy, to believe with all your heart that God loves you. Some of you in the room, if I asked you in private, I would say, does God love everyone? You would say yes. But then I would ask you, do you believe that God really loves you? With all of your flaws, 
and all your struggles. Does God like you? Does God delight in you? Does God really enjoy you? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. You're his child. He sent Jesus to die for you. He loves you. He does. Do you believe that you're valuable? You are. Do you believe with all your heart that you are truly, fearfully, and wonderfully made? You are. You really are. You are beautiful. You have infinite worth. God has called you to serve him, and he has given you the gifts to empower you to live out that calling. I know we can doubt it. I know we can look at our flaws, and, and we can just believe the lies and say, God, maybe you call me, but I don't have any of the empowering. You love others, but you can't love me. And we get so full of insecurity and fear. But if you want to walk in victory and have the freedom that only Jesus offers, your soul has to truly rest in Jesus. And I'm learning this. I'm like you, a fellow learner on the journey. Because I'm a very task-oriented person on do, 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 and I'm learning to rest, 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 and enjoy him and be filled with his presence. And the insecurities and the doubts begin to dissipate. Sin promises to fill us. Sin promises, but they're all lies. Are you suffering today with brokenness? or sinful desires. Jesus really wants to free you so that you can lift your head up high and walk as his child. You must draw near to Jesus. Your soul must commune with him. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid that if you, if you give up that sin, that idol, that pattern, that you lose all your joy. And you can't imagine life without it. Because honestly, the idol has brought you comfort. That pattern really has brought you a degree of comfort. But you must believe that Jesus is better. That holiness is better. A clear conscience is better. Restored relationships with those around you is better. The, the pursuit of holiness really is the pursuit of Jesus. Because the more that we see him and love him, the more that his third is going to change us and we will walk in more holiness. And we must do this together. Some of you here are suffering. You're suffering silently. And your soul is in anguish. And you can't break free from those patterns. But you're too afraid to confess to anyone, not even to your spouse. Believe Jesus, that healing begins when that sin is brought to the light. And honestly, repent before God, and I can assure you that that storm that's raging inside of you, and you're so afraid that you're going to go under, Jesus is with you. He's in the boat. And he'll calm that storm. He'll calm that storm in your soul. If you will come clean, if you will love him and trust him and rest in him enough and confess that 
to those that you trust. What's amazing is the path that these choirs took around Jerusalem was the exact same path that Nehemiah walked along his first night. So much rubble, he couldn't even go with his animal. He needed to crawl through it. And now, all this time later, rubble is gone. It's restored. That's what God does. He takes the rubble in our lives and he restores it and makes all things new. Can we be a church where I can bring my brokenness to you and you bring your brokenness to me and we bring our brokenness to each other and we love each other and we don't condemn each other but we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We admonish as well each other. But we pursue Jesus and his restoration together. Do you have the transparent, meaningful friendships that you need? And if you don't have them, what is preventing you? Because it's available. Lastly, as we close, we've exhausted our time. As a people of God, we are called to be a missional people. Our self-sacrificing, a holy but a missional people. Jerusalem is a holy city designed to be light to the nations. And so the reason why God is restoring it is about displaying his glory. There are people all around us that have no hope, no forgiveness, no savior. And it's our privilege and responsibility to tell them. We must open our eyes and look around this. The fields are white. People in your life that are walking around like zombies spiritually they don't know Jesus. You need to tell them. You need to be intentional. And again, we do this together, encouraging each other to live missional lives, to be that light to the nations. Are you trying to follow Jesus by yourself? If you are, I have two very deep words for you. Okay, are you ready? Stop it. Stop it. Stop trying to follow him on your own. It's not going to work. God's restorative work is aimed at shaping a people for himself. Are you being shaped by the Spirit of God? If you're not, you can truly run and rest to him, with him. And if you're here and you have never, ever given your life to Christ, you can do so today. He'll receive you. He'll forgive you. He'll love you. And you too can be part of this eternal community of faith. Let me pray with you. Father, you are so good. And we are so undeserving. And yet you love us. You sent Jesus to take our guilt and our shame. And it's our delight to just live for you. We want to live lives that are self-sacrificing, that are holy, and that are missional. Because you are shaping us as a people for yourself. Thank you for loving us despite ourselves. Thank you for your spirit's work in our lives. Help us to walk in your spirit. And we pray in the name of our Savior and our King Jesus.